here in this primitive river bottom wilderness in southern Arkansas, along with deer, duck, crane, and beaver, lurks a creature that walks upright. Whether it is a man, a monster, or a myth, no one really knows. What we do know is the people around Falk, Arkansas, say they have seen such a creature nearly 250 times since 1954. And that this creature, whatever it is, emits one of the most terrifying sounds ever recorded. SJ, Estongo, Legabasji, welcome to Skoden Cinema. Yeah, that's right, we're back. This is the internet's uh, fourth or fifth most popular podcast dedicated to discussions involving native representation in film and media. I am your host, Turtle Boy, and today we're going to go on a journey. We're going to go deep into the uh, uh, bowels of the Arkansas Swamplands. We're going to be talking about a 1972 classic, Legend of Boggy Creek. Um, so yeah, most of the films that I've done um, have something to do with uh, native uh, representation. And so a lot of you guys may be wondering, you know, Turtle, why, why are, the world are, you, are you doing Legend of Boggy Creek? There's no native actors in it. There's no native subject matter. There's no native writers. There's no native directors. What's the deal? Well, um, those of you who have been following the show or are subscribed to the show um, know that I got together with some friends of mine, uh, Chris Hill over at um, Spooky Stories from Indian Country and Russell Sunneagle from Okie Podcast, and we've put together this little sidecast called uh, Unsolved Mysteries of the Reservation. And on that show, uh, we're really kind of discussing um, Native American cryptids, uh, Native American supernatural beings, and kind of uh, exploring some of those areas. And during our research, we discovered that, um, you know, not all, but a lot of uh, tribes across the United States and even Canada, uh, North America, um, have some type of... Uh, Estejepko or Tall Man or Bigfoot stories or Bigfoot legends. And so I thought, hey, you know, let's talk about what, what better movie to talk about than The Legend of Boggy Creek because um, 
it was one of the first, if not the first, most popular film ever made on Bigfoot. And it's uh, legendary. Uh, the, folk, the legends of the Falk monster are still around today. And so I thought, uh, uh, let, let's talk about it. Let, let's kind of delve into this, this little hidden gem of a, of a movie. Now, I first came across this movie as a kid. And again, those of you who follow the show know that I was pretty much raised in a video store. Uh, I was a VHS kid, uh, you know, anywhere within a five mile radius of my bike. Um, I would hop on that bike, especially in the summertime and, and cruise on over to spotlight video or, or super video or pop and go video um, uh, or first run video. Uh, this is even before Blockbuster and, and before, you know, Hollywood video. And I would peruse the aisles, um, you know, looking at all these uh, crazy, you know, horror movies or action movies or, um, you know, dramas. And, and, and The Legend of Boggy Creek is, is one that stood out to me, uh, not only because of the box art, but because of the tagline. The tagline of this movie, it says, uh, based on a true story. And so that right away, you know, being a naive uh, you know, 10, 11, 12 year old kid, I, I took it at face value. I, I took it as being like, man, this is a, a true story. This is real. What I'm seeing on screen is real. Um, other similar films that I had that same experience with would be like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, the original 74, where they have the uh, introduction by John Larroquette talking about how, you know, the, the film you are about to see is based on true events. Uh, another one that w is a kind of a sleepover film for me was uh, Faces of Death series, you know, uh, where, where you have this the host, the, this so quote unquote doctor, Francis B. Gross. Uh, that should kind of tip you off right there that what you're seeing is not real. Um, but he would kind of go uh, explore the, the subject of death in all these different countries. And But anyway, um, The Legend of Boggy Creek was a film like that where I, I thought what I was seeing on screen, the, the stories that I was hearing on screen, the, 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 the images that I, were seeing, that I was seeing on screen were, were real. And man, what, what, what a time. Uh, if I could just go back to that, to that time of innocence, I guess, uh, to where, to where uh, you know, things like that still spooked me, uh, so to speak. Um, so anyway, but yeah, so that, that's kind of why I thought, you know, this, this is a, a film that I grew up with uh, that I've watched several times. And um, I thought, hey, let, let's, talk about, uh, let's talk about this movie because honestly, it's, it's a real fun one. So um, the movie stars, um, you know, honestly, nobody. <laughs> I'm going to say that the, the movie kind of uh, stars what, I, what I'm calling folk yokels. <laughs> uh, because one of the reasons that this film feels so authentic is because the director chose to forego any type of real actors. He used um, actual residents of the small Arkansas town where this legend of the Falk monster originated. And it's a brilliant concept, if you think about it, especially for a movie shot in 1972. I mean, right? Who, who better to tell this story than the real people who lived through it? So there's not a whole lot to discuss as far as, um, you know, who's in the movie, but there are a lot of um, key players who all came together to make this film happen. And probably the most important person to um, get this thing going 
was the director himself, a man by the name of Charles B. Pierce. Before I jump into who Charles B. Pierce is, um, I want to kind of cite my sources for all the information that you're about to hear. Uh, when doing research for these episodes, um, you know, I, I, I read as much as I possibly can. I do internet searches. I do uh, uh, Wikipedia searches and I do, um, you know, just Google searches and, and news articles and all these things. But during my research, I came across two books, um, both written by the same author. Um, the author is Lyle Blackburn, and the books are called The Beast of Boggy Creek, The True Story of the Falk Monster, and The Boggy Creek Casebook. Um, and they're both written by a man by the name of Lyle Blackburn. Uh, Lyle Blackburn is probably the foremost expert on folk monster lore or folk monster history. He's been featured on um, Finding Bigfoot. Um, he actually made a documentary called um, The Legend of the Boggy Mo Creek Monster, um, which I think is on YouTube. So um, these two books are available through his website if, if you want to... Um, pick up a, a copy. They're, they're great reads. They're super insightful. It basically tells you everything that you've ever wanted to know and some things that you probably didn't want to know uh, about um, the Falk monster. So I appreciate uh, Mr. Blackburn for writing these books and, and uh, I wanted to give him full credit for where all this information comes from. The Legend of Boggy Creek um, was the directorial debut of a man named Charles B. Pierce. Um, he had put aside um, a fairly successful advertising agency in order to pursue his dream of making a movie. Uh, Pierce grew up in Hampton, Arkansas, and from a very early age, um, like most of us, he had a fascination with movies. Um, he, along with several other friends in the neighborhood, began making homemade movies using an old 8mm camera. Um, but by his mid-20s, he began working as an art director for a television studio in Shreveport, Louisiana. And Pierce had this kind of do-it-all attitude. Um, he multitasked at the station. Um, he did the weather, and he was also the host of an afternoon's children program, children's program. And I don't know if anybody out there listening um, in the Tulsa area remembers um, Uncle Zeb. Do you guys remember Uncle Zeb? Uh, yeah, he, he was kind of like our local um, television children's program um, that we had. And in fact, when I was a kid, I actually got to walk across the bridge and tell everybody hi. I probably said hi to my mom. I don't remember, but I remember going to see Uncle Zeb uh, when I was a kid. So that's a pretty cool throwback to those uh, in the Oklahoma area. But uh, anyway, um, in 1969, uh, Pierce moved to Texarkana, and there he established a small advertising agency, um, while at the same time, he played a character um, on television called Mayor Chuckles, uh, again, on the, on the local television program there. Um, using a basic 16 millimeter camera setup, um, he began producing commercials um, uh, for local businesses. And one of the businesses um, who he did a commercial for was this 18-wheeler slash farm equipment manufacturer called Leadwell and Sons. Now, why is this information pertinent? Like, why is this important? Why am I giving this all to you? Because it was that uh, company, Leadwell and Sons, who would put up the initial money to get Boggy Creek made. Okay. So... 
Um, like several residents, though, in the Texarkana area in the early 1970s, um, Pierce had been following the sensational newspaper stories about people encountering this large, hairy, ape-like creature in the backwoods. And as a result, he immediately began percolating this idea for a regional-based film um, on the monster. Um, seizing the opportunity, uh, Pierce approached the very wealthy Mr. Ludwell, and he kind of um, presented his idea. He kind of, you know, gave him, an, you know, here's what I would like to do. What do you think? Um, there's an interview that uh, Pierce did in 1997 issue of Fangoria magazine, and he kind of recalls pitching the idea to Ledwell. Um, quote, I wanted to do uh, a movie on that booger that was jumping on folks down the road there. It was in all the papers every morning, you know, about the folk monster and you know how it jumped on uh, someone else. When asked if he himself believed in the monster, Pierce replied, Oh, I don't know I, I, if I believe it or not, but it sure makes for a good movie. So after a little encouraging, um, Ledwell agreed to sign on and back the film. So now that he had his finances in order, the next step in business of, of business would be enlisting the town folk of Folk, Arkansas. Uh, to kind of cooperate and, and provide him with material to um, start a script. Um, Pierce recalls, you know, this being the most difficult part of putting the whole film together. While scouting locations, um, he began asking some residents what they thought of the idea of a movie being shot and uh, made in the little small town. Um, and honestly, he, he recalls them not taking very kindly to it. He says that um, most people didn't want to make a movie. They, they didn't want money. They didn't want anything. They wanted to be left alone, basically. Um, so this did not deter him one bit. Uh, Pierce kept uh, interviewing locals until he finally found a few willing to share their stories or even help out with filming, actually. So after um, a bit more research and you know a, a bit more story gathering, uh, Pierce felt confident that he had enough compelling source material to kind of start moving things ahead. The next step, though, was finding a competent person to put all of these stories into a script. And there he found a man by the name of Earl E. Smith, who lived near Texarkana. Uh, Smith had never written a movie before, but he somehow proved to Pierce that he was the right man for this job. Smith would be a man who would definitely prove his worth as he would go on to work with Pierce in several of his other films, including Winter Hawk and The Town That Dreaded Sundown, and actually um, Sudden Impact, uh, believe it or not, the Dirty Harry film. But um, using the working title of Tracking the Folk Monster, uh, Pierce went ahead and began filming all of the principal photography. Uh, he was doing like establishing shots. He was doing all of his um, cutaways. He started doing all of his kind of B-roll stuff, uh, despite not having a single word of the script in front of him. 
um, he planned on using this documentary approach and he was going to use narration overdubs. So he felt like, you know, I don't really need um, any rehearsed dialogue anyway because it's all going to be uh, dubbed anyway. So, uh, and also not to mention that he was not even really going to use any real actors delivering um, written speech. And this method would be uh, a really keen move on his part and really smart. Um, Pierce decided that uh, he was going to film the local folk residents recalling their stories and then have them literally act them out on screen, which again is a brilliant idea. One such local was a man that he met named Smokey Crabtree. Uh, Crabtree, his 13-year-old son, Lynn, had come face-to-face with the monster just six years prior. The story that Smokey tells was uh, one evening in 1965, uh, Lynn Crabtree was hunting squirrels by himself near the bottoms of the Sulphur River. As the sun began to set, Lynn was perched beneath an acorn tree waiting for squirrels. Suddenly, he heard the noise of what he thought was horses running down a nearby logging trail. They eventually splashed into the water of the lake, which was about 75 yards from where the boy was sitting. Turns out the horses belonged to a neighbor, and they often ran wild through the woods, so this wasn't anything really out of the ordinary. About the time the horses hit the water, he heard a dog bellowing in pain. The sound was coming from the same location of the lake. Lynn thought that it might be one of the dogs maybe hung up on a fence or something, so he walked down to check it out. He was about halfway down the trail when the sound went from a dog bellowing to this low growl, grunt, and finally a groan. The boy had never heard anything like that before, so it caused him to stop carefully in his tracks and listen. It was completely unnerving as he slowly realized that it wasn't a dog making that noise. He walked forward another 25 yards to get a better look when he saw some sort of large, hairy animal with his back turned to him standing near the water about 30 feet away. The thing just stood there, watching the horses splash and run through the water. The horrified hunter stood silent and scared as he realized that this was the creature that had originally spooked the horses to begin with. The beast was moving its head and shoulders in a very agitated way before quickly turning and looking directly at the boy. The terrified Lynn raised his gun in an attempt to scare the creature away. Not sure if it was a man or not, Lynn refused to shoot. The creature began walking towards the boy. Out of fright, he fired a shot straight into the air before dropping his rifle and and running back home, screaming and crying. So when Pierce and Smith had heard this story from Smokey Crabtree, they contacted um, the boy's father, who agreed to act as sort of a tour guide around town and through the swamps. This proved to be a fortunate move, as Smokey's lifelong experience in the bottoms proved to be an invaluable asset when it came to assessing the remote regions for filming. Smokey agreed to take Pierce through the waterways of the Mercer Bayou um, so that he could shoot all the B-roll that he needed. Each outing would find Crabtree launching his homemade canoe, rowing Pierce around the boggy swamplands until he got all the shots that he wanted. 
Pierce also used footage uh, that he shot of Smokey's son, Travis, who subbed in for Lynn, as Lynn wanted nothing to do with the movie whatsoever. Eventually, uh, he rounded up enough residents to kind of start making a go of it, enough people that, he, that wanted to be in this movie. So uh, with his uh, tour guide in place and his actors in place, now it's time to look for a crew. For that, he mainly relied on volunteers or a bunch of high school kids from Texarkana that he employed in the summertime who had helped him shoot commercials at his advertising agency. For the role of the monster, um, Pierce decided to use a couple of different actors. To create the costume, um, he simply ordered a cheap gorilla suit from a costume housing company in Los Angeles and he just fastened a bunch of um, cheap dime store wigs to it, uh, especially near the head to cover the face. The effect, to be honest with you, is pretty convincing, uh, especially when it's shot from far away. Uh, it's this very haunting, very creepy visage uh, of the monster. So with his script writer in place, with his crew assembled, with uh, his tour guide assembled, uh, he's ready to kind of start shooting this, this B-movie classic. Um, this film, The Legend of Boggy Creek, um, has bragging rights as being the first um, horror film shot in this docudrama style. Um, you know, here you have this gritty, uh, grainy, uh, you know, 16-millimeter uh, film uh, piecemeal production um, that incorporated both first-person accounts accompanied by what looks like improvised reenactments. And the way and style that um, Pierce shot this film in, it really lends an air of believability to it. The technique um, is kind of common today. Most of you guys know it as a uh, found footage film, uh, whether it's... Um, uh, Blair Witch, or whether it's Paranormal Activity, or something more um, culty like uh, VHS, or um, I'm trying to think of something else, uh, Cannibal Holocaust, I guess. Um, you know, he here you have the very first film that was shot in that style. So that's just a little bit of a background on the kind of uh, production of, of getting this film put together. And again, I want to thank the uh, author Lyle Blackburn for all that information. Check out that book. It's called The Beast of Boggy Creek. You can pick it up on Amazon if you want to, um, or you can order one from his um, Instagram page. So if you have the nerve, um, check out this film. I don't believe that it's available anywhere as far as um, on YouTube or on Amazon Prime. I think the only way that you can um, watch this film is by having a physical copy like I do. So if you want to watch this film, you're going to have to go to thelegendofboggycreek.com and there you will find a shop tab. If you click on the shop tab, you can order books, you can order the DVD, you can order the remastered Blu-ray. I think there's shirts and posters on there, but do yourself a favor, go there and pick up a copy of, of this film. Um, I think you can also might rent this on Google Play. Honestly, I don't know a whole lot about Google Play, but um, it may be available for rental there. 
But go check it out because this movie is a whole lot of fun. So if you haven't seen it, I'm getting ready to spoil the crap out of it for you. So you have been warned. Spoilers and plot points, major plot points <laughs> ahead. Yeah, this is going to be probably one of the most difficult films that I'm, that I'm going to try to dissect here. Because, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the, in the intro, um, it plays much more like a documentary than an actual, you know, plot-driven narrative film. Um, it's basically uh, a bunch of uh, scenes based on casebook files or, or newspaper clippings, and they're all kind of loosely connected with uh, narration or um, uh, nature shots. So this one's going to be just a little different. Uh, don't hate on me. Uh, I'm going to try my best to, um, you know, give this film its its proper uh, comeuppance. Um, it has, without a doubt, um, one of the best openings that I have ever seen. Especially if you get an opportunity to see this in a movie theater, like I did um, when it played at the Circle Cinema. Because the film opens with, and I'm not even kidding you, um, 40 seconds of a black screen. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating what I say. I, I counted it out in my head. It's about 40 seconds of nothing but a black screen. But what's cool about it is that the sounds that you're hearing while this black screen is, you know, on is the sounds of like a bullfrog and the bullfrogs um, and crickets. And they're almost like taunting you. They're, they're kind of mocking you. They're hollering out to you, I guess. Um, you hear like mosquitoes or the sounds of uh, locusts and, and things like that. Um, and it really kind of puts you at, at uh, it gives you kind of an uneasy feeling, I guess. Um, and then you get this title card that says, this is a true story. Some people in this movie portray themselves, in many cases, on actual locations. Boom. That's all you need right there. I'm telling you, way back in 1972, this may not seem like a big deal to you and I, uh, especially where we're at you know, currently in cinema, but um, for audience members back in 72, this was a huge marketing device, right? Um, I mean, we're still at a time of relative innocence, you know, despite um, the ongoing war in Vietnam. And I mentioned it, too. You know, like I was an innocent kid watching this movie. I literally thought what everything I was going to see on screen was real. So um, an adult or a teenager would, would probably think the same. Um, you know, kids back then, even adults, were very susceptible to easy scares, and just the notion that what they were about to see was true, gullible audiences just ate that up like goulash. Uh, so this film, you know, began a trend of what several people now refer to as drive-in flicks um, that were presented for the very first time in movie history as true stories, like Walking Tall, uh, or Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, or Jackson County Jail, or The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Um, in each of these cases, um, most, if not all, of, of what was portrayed on screen is outright fiction, <laughs> with the exception of The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which is also done by Charles B. Pierce 
and it was inspired by the Phantom Killer murders in Texarkana in 1946. If you don't know anything about the Phantom Killer, um, look it up because that's a super duper interesting story, and that is a really good film as well. But anyway, um, this film managed to do that two years, a year prior to any of that ever happening. You'd never heard of that before. Um, you know, having a, a fictional film supposedly based on true events, um, you've, you've never, we've never seen that before in, in, in cinema. So um, the film begins as if it's going to be this straight nature film that you'd commonly see strung up on um, school projectors, you know, back in the 1980s. And I'm going to age myself here um, because I was one of those kids. Shout out to all the alum of Walter Reed Elementary and Roy Clark Elementary students in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, Anytime we ever walked into class and we saw the projector with the old um, 16 millimeter film reels strung up, we knew we were going to be in for a great day. But uh, so <laughs> this film, um, like I said, after you get the title card, I'm kind of jumping ahead. I'm all over the place. I'm sorry. It's been a while since I've done one of these. So bear with me. Um, so after the title card, um, it's basically this shot after shot after shot of swamplands. And you get like these broken trees that are eerily silhouetted against a sunrise. There's um, snakes slithering um, through the water. There's tadpoles like squirming. There's ospreys diving. There's beavers swimming. Um, and all the while that you see this, the camera is gliding um, very fluidly close to the surface of the water. And it kind of reminds me of um, those shots in Evil Dead, um, if anybody has seen that, you know, where the camera, the force shots, so to speak, where like the camera's tracking super low to the ground, but it's just very fluid movement. And um, the soundtrack also switches now from the noises that we have been hearing, like um, bullfrogs and crickets, um, to the sound of uh, breaking limbs. And you hear like foot stomps and then you get this low growl and then finally that low growl kind of crescendos into a howl. It's freaking awesome. It's such a brilliant way to set this up. It's the introduction to where this movie takes place. The Sulphur River Bottoms and the, the monster that, that lurks there. I mean, we are in the middle of absolutely nowhere, and it's kind of unsettling, like I said. So uh, suddenly, we, we kind of shift from that to this little blonde-haired kid who's in overalls, and he's like running top speed across this field as if he's being chased by something. And the score here is amazing. It's like this melding of orchestral music coupled with um, that kind of classic Isaac Hayes uh, funk, you know, wonka, wonka, wonka pedal. I just love it, man. And I wish all the music um, in this movie was as great as that opening song, but unfortunately it's not. Um, it's, it's the highlight, but I'll get there. I'm telling you, the, the music in this film is, is something else. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we get this extreme long shot of a kid uh, running through a wheat field. And there's literally like nothing between this kid but ground and open sky. I mean, he's on the screen. He's like tiny. And there's just this beautiful open sky above his head. Um, and he's like uh, 
you know, scaling wired fences. He's, um, you know, running past these dilapidated barns. Uh, he's running past shacks. He's, uh, you know, just, but everything looks run down. Everything looks abandoned. And again, it kind of adds to the remoteness of all of this, you know, um, the isolation, I guess. And so we kind of keep following this kid and he runs into what I think is a feed store. Um, so it's not really um, made clear what, he, what he's running into, a general store or a feed store. Um, and there's like these four old ass men and they're all wearing like these pork pie derby fedoras. And they're all kind of sitting around um, just, you know, shooting hot air like, like uh, most of the elders do. What do you boys think about going turkey hunting this year? I think we ought to go. Mr. Willie, my mom wants to, me to ask you, would you come down to our house? There's some kind of wild man down there in the woods about the creek. Now, boy, I want you to go back down there and tell your mama there ain't a thing in the world to be afraid of. I'll come down there tomorrow and check it out. <laughs> go ahead. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. <laughs> you know, that's the third time that old lady sent that kid up here to tell me there's a big old hairy monster down there in my field. I guess I'll have to get down there tomorrow and see about it. Back <laughs> old <laughs> my old hairy monster, man. Uh, <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> oh man. So by the way, these fools are, you know, like laughing and carrying on, um, you know, do you, you think that might be a setup? <laughs> but, um, anyway, after being, uh, you know, rudely dismissed and, you know, downright heckled, uh, the kid starts running back, uh, and he's running on the exact same path that he actually took to get to the old farts. You could literally just play this film backwards cause he's, um, running past the same barns, the same wire fences, the same wheat fields, the same, uh, shacks, the same grasslands. Uh, I mean, this kid, the way he's running is, it feels like he's practically running across the entire state of Arkansas. But before he hits a tree line, um, we get this super cool, tight pulled zoom uh, right on his face. And it's accompanied by this howl. And, you know, this kid at this point, you know, probably shat his overalls. Um, the howl, uh, you know, hearing this howl causes him to really quicken his pace and he hurries all the way back to the house. And then we get the first narration voiceover uh, from the narrator. I was seven years old when I first heard him scream. It scared me then and it scares me now. Heck yeah, it does. That's how you start a movie right there. That is a heck of an introduction, let me tell you. Uh, you know, you, you build up all of this tension, and then blammo, uh, you hit it with that howl. Uh, then the credit sequence um, starts playing over that really kind of creepy score. So the sun uh, starts setting, and um, this little jabroni is kind of staring out the window. 
um, and he's, uh, as the sun's going down, um, it casts this like internal darkness over the entire area. And it's one of those things, you know, like when, when night comes, when night falls, that's when the scary things, that's when the spooky things come out. And let me tell you, the way this whole setup is, man, it is, it's spooky, uh, you know, uh, no, no lying. The scene, um, you know, of the old man and, and the kid and everything was actually based on a real incident that occurred in the mid-1950s in which a mom um, had sent her seven-year-old son on this two-mile trek to the town of Folk, Arkansas to inform the landlord that they had seen a um, large hairy creature approach their home. Um, Pierce, you know, he does well. Uh, he does a good job here introducing the boy, uh, which was actually played, you know, fun tidbit, um, was actually played by his real life son. Um, but anyway, he does a good job uh, introducing this boy um, because later in the film, as an adult, he gets to kind of reflect back on the story of the monster. So it's a brilliant setup. And um, you, you uh, film scholars out there, uh, don't overlook this gem, you know, don't overlook it. So after the title sequence, um, we get these really kind of eerie, um, you know, dead of night swamp shots um, of all. It's kind of hard to make out what some of it is, um, but lots of, you know, broken trees against this, the night sky and things like that. The moon, stuff like that. Um, and then uh, we fade into an old water tower and it's littered with like this really keen, you know, class in 1972 uh, graffiti um, by the senior class. It's really kind of um, uh, a nice little uh, throwback, I guess, uh, to, uh, you know, like I said, just simpler times, uh, like Dazed and Confused or something like that. Um, but uh, the narrator then kind of introduces us to the quaint little town of um, Folk, Arkansas. And he says something along the lines of like the population being like 350 people and he's kind of describing its location on the map. Um, and it is, it is a real place. You can Google it. Um, the entire town is still there and, you know, there's not much left of, um, you know, the, the, the monster itself other than um, a little convenience store called the Monster Mart. Um, I was actually kind of tempted to call the Monster Mart and, and just kind of see what they had to say. Um, but I don't know. I just kind of chickened out, I guess. But um, if you're wondering where um, Folk Arkansas is, um, it's located in the far south bend of Arkansas. It's um, in the corner where Texas and Louisiana meet. Um, basically, you could like um, throw a beer bottle from Texarkana and probably hit Falk City Hall. Uh, the narrator then goes on to regale us about, you know, how there's not much to do in Falk but hunt and fish and um, that it's pretty much what everyone in town talks about or that's pretty much what everybody in town does. And then we're introduced to the man in the man of the hour. He, he's got this flamboyant welder's cap. Um, he's, his name is Smokey Crabtree. Yep, the, the real man, as I live and breathe, the guy responsible for, um, you know, putting the locations together, um, interviewing some cast and, and putting some locals together. That's right. Smokey freaking Crabtree. Uh, we get... Um, you know, uh, we get an introduction to Smokey, basically. Um, you know, he's, uh, 
he's a welder in town. He has a son named Travis, and Travis loves to trap and fish, and and Smokey likes to trap and fish, and um, you know we get shots of Smokey and Travis kind of you know prepping these trap lines, and and we learn that it's Travis's job to run these lines every morning before school. Um, but let me tell you, uh, there's a lot more to the Crabtree pedigree, my friends, than trap lines, skull cans, and welder caps. One of the earliest known sightings of the monster was actually reported by a man named James Crabtree in 1955. Uh, he claimed to encounter the creature while fishing um, at a nearby river. Sounds just like a crab tree, doesn't it? Always fishing. Um, but anyway, uh, he described the monster, you know, pretty much the same as, as every description that you've ever heard. Um, you know, large and hairy and looks like a gorilla, but walks like a man. Da, 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 da. Um, but he bumped into the beast um, while doing what else that the crab tree does? Running trap lines. But he said that the creature was bent over the riverbank washing his feet off. Um, when he when he spotted it, uh, he said that it gently stood up and lumbered off into the woods. When he reported it back to the town folk, everybody assumed that James had just seen a bear. But old Wiley James, um, he he stood by his story, and being perhaps one of the most accomplished hunters and fishermen in town. Um, people actually started to believe it and they no longer, you know, questioned uh, the sincerity of it. They, they, they thought that he was telling the truth. But if you think that James Crabtree and Smokey Crabtree were the only crab trees to ever tree a monster, well, then you just don't know crap about the crab trees. Um, one of the most significant meetings with the beast was um, documented in 1965, as mentioned earlier, by Smokey's 14-year-old son, Lynn. Um, for whatever reason, um, you know, Lynn just decided not to participate in the movie, um, so they, they substituted his real-life son, Travis, for Lynn. But... Um, it's pretty well known that the entire film, um, The Legend of Bucky Creek, this whole movie, was initially based on the newspaper report of this encounter. So after the introduction uh, of Smokey and Travis, um, we get like the a good solid three minutes of like pandering and, and painting the town of Folk, Arkansas with just the most downright wholesomest of brushes. Um, basically telling us all what a wonderful place it is to live. Um, that is until the sun goes down. And that's actually a line in the film. That's a line of dialogue in the film spoken by the narrator. And then the ominous score uh, leads us to the front porch of this Norman Rockwell painting where we see the wind kind of whipping the porch swing to and fro. And there's, there's dogs barking maniacally in the background. And then we hear a low guttural growl and then a cat unexpectedly uh, screeches as it jumps, uh, you know, right in the front door. And I nearly shat myself because I completely forgot about this scene. Um, no matter how many times I've seen this movie, that that's a creeper. It always sneaks up on me. 
But before you even have time to, to clean up that mess, uh, from out the screen door steps uh, Willie E. Smith with a shotgun. And he fires off two quick rounds. And then he racks that SOB like a freaking boss. And, and he goes back inside. Uh, the narrator then informs us that old Willie Smith didn't believe him when uh, he was a kid in the general store. But you best believe he believes his story now, suckers. <laughs> So then we cue, uh, excuse me, then we cut to a, a rancher by the name of uh, John P. Hickson, um, who begins recanting his tale. Um, but it's also worth mentioning here that the ranch that this jabroni owns is called Apache Ranch, and that is one of two native references in the film. And he ran on east, jumped over the fence, just seemed like he just sort of pushed it down with his left hand, just stepped over. It was wounded and was holding that right chest. It had that right hand on his chest all the time that it was in sight. Maybe if it hadn't been hurt uh, pretty badly, why, it might have run on all four legs. I don't know. But uh, it wasn't. It was running on two legs at all times. That was uh, about all I saw of the thing. Whoa, 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 whoa. Is this jabroni claiming that he actually shot one? Uh, no, actually, he's not. Um, he's actually referring to the night that Willie E. Smith claims to have shot one. <laughs> In all actuality, um, it is pretty much believed that this whole interaction is a farce um, because according to the book, uh, Beast of Boggy Creek, there is no real John Hickson that lived in the town, nor could the author locate Apache Ranch. So, uh, nice try, Lao Shay. Next up, you get um, John W. Oates. And, oh, God, do I love this dude. Uh, <laughs> you could literally, like, peel him off this celluloid and paste him into any hipster bar in downtown area. You couldn't tell a difference. I'm telling you, this dude is slick, y'all. He's lean. He's greasy. He's got horned-rimmed glasses. Excuse me. Let let the man speak. Something came through here last night. Killed my two prize shots. Found one of them lying right here. Deep gashes and cuts in, and his tongue was hanging out. Looked like something had strangled him. I keep them down off down here by the creek in this pen. And whatever it was, got in the pen, lifted both them 200-pound hogs over the fence. I couldn't find no place where they'd been dragged under it. I couldn't find no tracks, so I figured whatever it was came and left traveling up and down that creek. Not knowing what had killed them hogs, I just threw them away. I carried them way off out there in the bushes so the smell wouldn't get back up the house there. Next day, got up and looked out there and thought it kind of funny, not seeing any buzzards circling or anything. So came down here and both hogs were gone. That thing, whatever it was, must have come back and the grass wasn't even disturbed where the hogs was. What kind of thing can pick up 200-pound hogs and walk off with them? <laughs> I told you, this guy. It's so freaking cool, man. I just, his whole speech pattern, the southern draw, it's just, my God, man, this guy is a freaking unit. 
but anyway, um, you know, honestly, there, there's a bit of stretching going on here. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not here to debunk this movie or make fun of it because I love it. Um, but if I spotted indiscretion, you know, you got to point it out. That's that's the responsibility of a of a good reporter or journalist, which I don't consider myself to be. But um, you know, the first thing the film does is omit the fact that Oates actually lives about five or six miles away from Boggy Creek. And the second thing you have to address is that at no time does he address it directly. Um, you know, the movie, he never claims to see the monster. He never um, shot the monster. He never witnessed the monster doing any of these things. He's just theorizing that it was the work of the monster. He has no proof. He never saw it. Um, he never even described um, what the monster looked like or, or, or seeing the monster or, or anything else. He's only um, assuming that uh, the monster did this. So you got to love uh, a documentary filmmakers and their edits, right? So after those two harrowing tells, uh, the film shifts from the wholesomeness of Falk, Arkansas, to the lonely and spooky and isolated atmosphere of Boggy Creek. And once again, it's, it's a brilliant transfer as well. All we've seen so far uh, of the movie or of the sleepy little town is like the gas stations and the diner and the post office and the folks who call it home. And they talk about how great it is to live there. And, and you know, it's just it's a, a wonderful place to raise your kids. Right. And all of these scenes are filmed in these really warm, inviting um, oranges and yellow and red hues. And it's very inviting. And as soon as we um, switch from Falk to Boggy Creek, now the, the, the tone shifts and you get these cold, barren grays. There's these muddy greens and browns. All the vegetation in the swamp looks dead or, or close to it. And the camera kind of floats close to the ground as it's tracking the terrain and we fade to this overhead shot of boggy creek itself and it's kind of showing how it's twisting and turning through the landscape almost like cutting it in two and the narrator regales us of all the wildlife known to be in the area and how they depend on this swamp for all of its resources and it also kind of goes on to detail how the creek feeds into the Sulphur River. And when it rains, the river spills all of its contents and it floods the bottom lands for miles and miles in every direction. And this makes for the perfect area um, for, for an, a monster to exist in because it's virtually impossible to trek through. Um, it's just perfect fodder for creatures or, or, or you know, the, these monsters to live because um, you can't get there. It, it's, it's impossible to um, uh, trek or, or impossible to uh, maneuver through. It's just a perfect greeting, uh, excuse me, a perfect breeding ground um, for stories like these, right? 
So because you have like this limited access to the area, the other thing that this does very well is set up um, the specific people who have encounter who've had these encounters with the beast. I mean, it's already a rural area to begin with, but then once you factor in the one group of people who would have the best opportunity to bump into this behemoth, then all of this makes perfect sense. It's all hunters. It's all fishermen. It's all outdoorsmen or hermits. <laughs> I mean, we've already heard from like um, three hunters and, and we're barely 10 minutes into this film. Um, now mark it four because Fred Crabtree is going to tell you his story. Uh, how many freaking Crabtrees live in this town? They're, they're, uh, <laughs> the family tree just must go straight up, I guess. But, um, this is a neat scene. Let me say that really fast. So, um, you know, you have, uh, Fred, he's coming down this embankment, um, He's dressed in camouflage. He's got like a flak jacket on and he's got his rifle tucked under his arm. Um, and he creeps down towards the bank of the creek. Um, he's wanting to kind of, uh, basically he improves his sneak skill to like 30 or 32. Uh, but he stops near the edge of the water and then he kind of looks left and then he looks right. And then he, you know, kind of ponders for a moment and squats down. And then you have this amazing sequence because as soon as he crouches down about 25 yards away in the background, um, the beast stands up. I mean, whoo! <laughs> I mean, you don't even realize that that monster is there until it stands up and it kind of catches, you know, catches you off guard and it's creepy as F. I I'm telling you, it's, it's an awesome scene. It just didn't look like anything I'd ever seen. I thought at first it might be some kind of a wild man. But I couldn't tell all that hair just what it was. I changed my shells and my shotgun. From squirrel shot to my buck shot. More for my protection than anything else. If I'd have had my rifle, I believe I could have knocked him down easy. But I doubt if I would have. I kept thinking, there's just a chance. Might be a man. And if I'd have shot that thing, it turned out to be a man. I'd have had to live with that the rest of my life. Although he was never sure, Fred got the impression the creature had been washing his feet in the icy water. According to the book, the Boggy Creek case book, um, Fred's encounter would have occurred somewhere in the mid to late 60s. And it's important to note this because of all of the crab trees on planet Earth, and there is a ton of them. Um, this would make him the first crab tree to report seeing it. Um, back to the film, though. Um, now it's James Crabtree's turn to spin his yarn. I've spent a lot of my life in these woods, and there was something strange about that evening that I couldn't put my finger on it. It, it was just a feeling I had. There didn't seem to be as, as many birds and little small animals out as usual. In fact, they, they seemed mighty scarce. 
So besides informing the viewer that the monster uses the little runoff streams to sort of navigate the land, the clip is also going to end with an explanation of why none of these people ever came forward with their stories. Um, it's these two accounts um, of, of Fred and James Crabtree that really kind of um, set in motion the compass um, which would guide the entire Crabtree clan for almost the rest of their lives. You know, it was Smokey, though, who uh, picked up the gauntlet and ran with it. Uh, he committed his life to finding proof of the folk monster, not only to, you know, satisfy his own curiosity, but also really to, you know, substantiate his uncles and his son's stories who suffered um, ridicule all over town. Um, before he passed away in 2016, um, Smokey had wrote over three books on the subject and was a very important part of uh, bringing this movie to life. Um, and, and all of the Crabtrees um, in this film portray themselves. It stepped right out in plain sight, right, right out there in front of me. And he was, it was some kind of thing that I've never come across before. Well, he stared at me for a little while and he just slipped out of sight. I never saw him again. Neither Fred Crabtree nor his Uncle James told anyone about their experience for years. They figured nobody would believe them. So the next dramatization we're treated to is um, Deborah Ann Searcy. Uh, what we see on screen um, appears to be this pretty, you know, dilapidated farmhouse shack. Uh, that's the best way I can probably describe it. Um, but this house, <laughs> it looks like just like a strong gust of wind could just easily knock it over. It's like, um, built on cinder blocks and I mean, it's just paper thin. It's just, looks like a, an old res house or something to be quite honest. But, uh, anyways, we meet, um, teenager, uh, Mary Beth Searcy and it's the perfect setup for disaster here. Because, um, you know, the, the narrator kind of tells us that she, she lives on this secluded farm with her mother, her father, and her little brother. Um, there's nobody around for miles, uh, so on and so forth. And on the night of the encounter, or of her encounter, um, her father um, just so happened to be working in another town. Her little brother was spending the night with friends, and that leaves Mary Beth, her mother, and her older married sister... Oh, and also um, her baby, I guess her uh, nephew or niece. Um, but it's also worth noting uh, that the house has no phone. And like I said, the nearest neighbor lives uh, about a mile away. So the scene begins with Mary Beth, and she's like fetching a bucket of water from the well. And it's probably about dusk. And she's looking down into the well, and uh, there's dogs on the property, and they kind of start baying and howling and kind of barking. And the wind starts to pick up, and, and then she kind of gets this eerie suspicion uh, that something's definitely rotten in Denmark here. So she stops what she's doing and begins, you know, having, having a look around. And I just love this sequence because uh, the director uses uh, this series of really quick-cut close-ups. Uh, and it just gives the viewer a real sense of, um, you know, uh, comfortability, uh, so to speak. 
And it's just, it's a brilliant scene, to be honest. And the soundtrack is just pure ambient nature noises. You get like the gentle breeze uh, blowing. You have a cow like in the far distance. There's birds. Uh, there's that those dogs, like I said, and just really like edgy silence. So she finishes uh, gathering the water and she quick steps uh, back to the house. And there's a jump to uh, an extremely long like left pan. And the camera slowly moves uh, like across the horizon line of like these dead trees and, and this tall grass. Um, and there's just like a kind of set against this, uh, you know, setting sun. And it's it looks sort of like an abstract painting. And it's really, really keen. Um, I, I love that shot there. But then we cut back to Mary Beth and she's sitting by the fire um, inside the house, obviously. Um, and she's uh, enjoying a book. But from the other room, we hear this really thick-ass uh, Arkansas accent calling out. Mary Beth? Huh? Mary Beth, would you please hang something over the window? There's a draft on the baby. Yeah, okay. Just a minute. Sounds like Sissy Spacek and... Uh, coal miner's daughter but uh now we cut back to like these real um like guttural grunts of a hairy beast lurking just outside the clearing to the front of the house um it's like stopping and staring stopping and staring but i just love the way that the filmmaker chose um only to kind of shoot the feet of the monster um it, it, it you know it allows it you know by, by doing it like this you know, it allows uh, it allows it to keep its integrity, um, you know, because obviously the budget didn't allow for like a full scale, fully sculpted monster. Um, but anyway, um, you know, by shooting it this way, um, it serves twofold. Uh, one, um, by the angle of the camera, uh, the viewer the viewer feels uh, very small in comparison, especially you know if you're watching this on a big screen. And then two, um, you got to keep the monster, you know, a mystery. You don't want to, you know, blow your wad in the first 10 minutes by showing the creature uh, or more importantly, uh, lack thereof. So, you know, if, if Spielberg taught us anything with Jaws and by Crom, he did. Um, it's that less is more. So, um, you know, you got to build suspense, um, which is exactly what this scene does. But the camera is like low to the ground and all that's like barely visible in the dark woods is the feet um, of the monster. And we track it as it moves across like this thick briar. Uh, and what we can't see of the beast is certainly made up for by what we can hear on screen because the sounds of broken sticks and, and like hard crunching of leaves, it really leaves an impression. And we also get to hear like the labored breath, you know, as it moves closer and closer to the house. Uh, then in a moment of like sheer brilliance, we cut to a close up of the baby in bed. And if that does not immediately put a terrible thought in your head, I don't know what would. It's such a savage editing device that was used right there. So Mary Beth uh, makes her way to the window um, and she covers it with a blanket, you know, to keep the, the damn draft off the baby. And as she's fumbling with the quilt, uh, something outside catches her eye. 
Through the bedroom window, we see the creature emerge from the tree line, and he kind of slowly lumbers towards the house. Mary Beth is like frozen with fright, and the cat starts wallering. Um, she tries to catch her breath as the brute just suddenly barrels forward. Uh, pretty frightening uh, imagery there. With all the energy that she can muster, she lets out like this terrifying scream, and she falls back onto the bed, uh, just an absolute shock. Uh, the sister rushes over to kind of calm her down, and she kind of attempts to, you know, shake her awake by the shoulders. And the narrator explains, you know, how the three women stayed wide awake the entire night, um, and they got spooked at any sound they heard coming from outside. But thankfully, we also learn, you know, that the baby slept through the entire ordeal. So thank God, um, you know, the monster didn't get it. Uh, the next morning, however, um, they found their dead cat uh, completely unmarked. Apparently, uh, the narrator tells us the, the cat was scared to death. But in order to really kind of drive the point home, the filmmaker pulls in a really tight close-up of the face of a you know, pretty uh, realistically looking dead cat. Um, in fact, I'd actually be shocked if this was a prop just kind of given what we know about the film, um, I'm pretty sure they probably just found this thing and, and decided to put it in the movie. But you get a good solid like 30 seconds to try to figure it out. And, um, you know, I don't know. There's, there's nothing really to back me up on this that they used a real dead cat, but it's just kind of my hunch. And so um, I'm going to say that it's real. But for this recreation, um, an actress by the name of Judy Hamilton plays the part of Mary Beth. And the actual real uh, Mary Beth Searcy uh, plays the part of her sister. And according to all the research that I could find, um, which again um, is the two books written by Lyle Blackburn, um, all, the folk uh, all the folk residents um, agree that this movie's portrayal is pretty accurate with the exception of the dead cat that was just kind of thrown in there just to kind of you know sweeten the pot, I guess. But uh, over the years, the real uh, Mary Beth Searcy um, suffered years and years of ridicule about the incident. And um, once this movie began kind of gaining some steam, she actually um, stopped talking about it altogether. In one of her last interviews that she ever gave um, during a 20th anniversary retrospective for the film, she explained how she felt. Quote, uh, they ask you about it, you know, like they're really serious. And then they laugh at you saying, ah, you don't believe that, do you? You don't expect us to believe that. Well, if I hadn't experienced them to believe it, then why would I tell them about it? And the reporter says, but it's real as far as you're concerned. And Mary Beth says, in quote, it's real because I saw it. Um, according to Cersei, um, she looked out the window and saw a large hairy creature walking on two legs toward her house. Um, the actual Cersei house um, still stands in um, fault today, um, although it's been vacant for a number of years and it's kind of run down. Um, and even though they, they've built houses next door, according to neighbors, uh, it still remains to this day a visual spooky sight and one of which uh, tourists and visitors like to visit. So the next thing that we see is a 13-year-old boy sitting on the front porch doing what every country kid does, whittling some wood. 
How many of y'all actually whittled wood growing up? Like seriously, um, I know I did. I mean, I, I I would grab a knife and then I and I whittled the the sharpest objects that I possibly could for for no reason for no reason whatsoever just to stick in the ground or or stab a tree or or uh, you know whatever. I mean, that's like a lost art whittling, right? Do kids? Do kids today, do they whittle anymore? I mean, I doubt it. Uh, I seriously doubt it because most of us are afraid to give our children, you know, uh, actual real silverware, uh, let alone, you know, send them off into the woods to play with a knife. But uh, anyway, <laughs> the narrator, uh, he lets us know that um, basically um, it's every boy's fantasy to kill a deer. And again, I'm not going to comment on that. I'm just going to quote what the movie actually says. <laughs> Um, so anyway, uh, this young whippersnapper, he's whittling and, uh, the dogs in the woods, uh, start going crazy. They're like barking and they're jumping and they're, they're howling, uh, yelping, you know, whatever. And the commotion, you know, really gets the attention of the little tyke, um, because he thinks, um, that they're hot on the trail of a deer. So he quickly runs back to the house. Um, he throws on his hunting vest, he grabs his rifle and he takes off out the door but in all of his excitement, um, he, he literally takes the five stairs off the front porch in one bound. And he trucks it down the trail, you know, deep into the woods. He, he's ready to, to murder some deer. Uh, so the camera tracks him in like this near sprint for probably a good minute and a half um, until he comes to uh, a dead stop um, at the sound of a dog being mauled. Um, in a flash, the creature steps out from behind the tree, um, you know, intentionally out of focus, I, I may add. And I freaking love it. It's genius. Um, and they have sort of this, um, you know, uh, staring standoff, uh, you know, before the boy decides to kind of like shakily raise his rifle and shoot. Uh, but the force of the gun blast sends him reeling backwards and he lands right on his, uh, his uh, Oshkosh uh, and allows the creature time to advance. This causes the kid first to probably crap his pants and then second, um, uh, you know, he gets up off the ground and he just runs like the wind. Uh, this kid's cardio is next level fire. It, it could only be uh, uh, seconded to the boy that we saw at the beginning of the film uh, running. So during this melee, uh, we get a pan across the wooded floor to reveal that the child did the ultimate sin of any uh, uh, countryman's son. He drops his rifle. Now, before we be, uh, go any further, this scene was actually based on an actual encounter of a 14-year-old kid named Kenneth Dias back in 1965. Dias, unfortunately, passed away a while back, so um, there's very few details other than what we see um, you know, in the film, what's depicted in the film. But uh, during all of these sequences, uh, I have to say, uh, Pierce does such an amazing job demonstrating a complete understanding of how to command suspense in a movie. Uh, he effectively like juxtaposes these claustrophobic scenes of these terrified victims. They're all huddled in their houses. They're frighteningly, you know, uh, terrifyingly running for their lives into the dense unknown forest. 
there's this giant hairy butte, uh, brute just tromping all over, um, you know, just because. And it gives the audience this real sense of foreboding doom. And Pierce also does the monster justice. Um, and like I said, you know, building that suspense by choosing to shoot him from a distance. Um, here he's out of focus. He's peeking out from behind a tree. Um, you know, he's hidden in the darkness. Uh, there's just all of these facets of filmmaking that, you know, deserves to be studied because it's such a brilliant way uh, to portray the setup to this movie. Later they found two-inch saplings broken down by the creature in his pain and fury. They saw crushed underbrush and blood stains, which, in the excitement, no one thought to gather a sample of. But they did not find the creature. The terrifying stories of face-to-face -face encounters with the creature triggered the Falk community into action. Boy, did it ever. Because the next thing that we see is a fleet of uh, white Ford pickup trucks with them old-school campers attached to them. I mean, it's just... It's as far as the eye can see. They must have really had a thing for, for white trucks in Arkansas at that time because there's literally like five or six of these things. And there's uh, these cuts uh, of all these old geezers kind of standing around. They've got Winston's, uh, you know, dangling from drooped lips and they're, they're clad in like the old school like Dickies coveralls and they've got camo uh, trucker caps and... Um, all of these guys just fall out of these vehicles like fresh fallen snow. Uh, some of them even have like a gaggle of dogs on chains and, and they're all like chomping at the bit just for a, a, a mere taste of, of tender, succulent Sasquatch flesh. Uh, but it's noted uh, by the narrator that uh, they even flew in some famous tracking dogs from Tennessee to try to hunt down the behemoth. Um, the scene, though, here is shot in 100% documentary style. Um, so the setup to this hunt, uh, it feels and looks like um, actual footage, uh, like news footage. Um, the camera, like, shakily kind of, like, spins and tilts and pans to these various shots of uh, this renegade posse, you know, um, tying um, unhumanly impossible amounts of sheep shank knots and they're, they're loading shotguns and they're shushing and quieting dogs and um, there's just this real uh, also uh, there's just this real keen scene of the men uh, walking down this dirt road towards the camera uh, looking very much like some sort of uh, redneck reservoir dogs and uh, the narrator gleefully, gleefully tells us uh, how he was invited along um, and that the invitation put a real tingle in his bottom. Uh, and then you have like this handheld uh, shaky cam uh, footage just completely adds to the authenticity uh, battle footage aesthetic uh, that the filmmaker's going for. And, and I'm sure, uh, you know, it, it lit... Uh, credence to uh, believability to a 1972 movie going audience very well because uh, you put this footage up against uh, news footage at the time 
uh, Hunter Buck says you can't tell the difference between the two. So not only now do we have these hellhounds on the trail of the monster, um, but we also have men on horseback. And in a scene that can only be described as a full-blown ad for Marlboro, uh, we have a real man's man. You know what I mean? He's like clad in this starched pearl snap red shirt. He's got these painted on jeans and he's just gently like trotting this, uh, you know, magnificent steed along the trail. And of course he is, uh, you know, uh, donning this pendulous cigarette, uh, just delicately, you know, bobbing up and down in his mouth. It's beautiful. Um, but it's here we get a pretty good look at the beast for the very first time as the camera cuts between the Marlboro man on horseback and the monster, you know, watching from the trees. Uh, the suit, though, that, that you see, uh, it's pretty solid. I'm not going to lie. Um, but again, I, I just love the idea of concealing the face um, with long, shaggy hair. And, and we talked earlier about how, you know, basically it was just a gorilla suit from a costume shop that they had ordered. And to kind of hide the fact that it was a gorilla suit, they just bought a bunch of old, you know, wigs from the dollar store and just kind of sewn them to the front. Um, but it's pretty effective, you know what I mean? Um, the face, when, the, when you do see it, you know, it's not convincing at all. Um, but I do think, you know, by, by attaching those wigs, it's a really smart way to work around it. So uh, uh, kudos to the uh, Dollar Tree wigs. Anyway, as the horse heads into the dense, deep woods, um, it's spooked by the heavily uh, perverted breathing of the folk monster. Uh, in a series of like quick cuts and zooms and tilts and pans, the horse uh, ends up bucking off the cowboy and he hightails it uh, into the sunset, uh, leaving a bruised buckaroo uh, staring at the beast from about 20 yards away. The cowboy um, hilariously uh, jumps up and uh, just takes off full blast anime style to God knows where. Um, this I say it's hilarious because if you've never seen a full-grown man in these really impossibly nut-hugging jeans, um, trying to complete the hundred-yard dash and um, you know pointed cowboy boots, then clearly comedy is just uh, not your thing. But uh, this scene too um, was based on a report made by a man named Jim Cornette. No, 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 not that Jim Cornette. Uh, this Jim Cornette, uh, this Cornette claims that, um, you know, uh, he was a part of the, one of the hunting expeditions put together by Smokey Crabtree. And he stated that he was riding his horse through the bottoms when some kind of large animal, uh, crossed the path, uh, causing his horse to throw him off. Um, he could never confirm, uh, what the animal, uh, he could never confirm what it was that he actually saw. Uh, was it a bear? Was it a gorilla? Was it a, you know, or something else? Who knows? So um, after that calamity, uh, we catch up to the boys and the hounds, and we learn through narration that the dogs picked up the creature's scent, but uh, for whatever reason, they refused to head into the woods to trail it. So you have to sort of leave that up to your imagination. And of course, you're going to say the dogs were too scared to go into the woods. So now you have a bunch of defeated and embarrassed hunters um, sort of uh, sad walking like Charlie Brown 
back to their respected camps. Not too many of the hunters were interested in plunging into thick woods in pitch darkness, knowing he was out there. Often I've tried to imagine how the creature must feel. Since his very appearance and the sounds he makes frightened us, our immediate reaction was to try to kill him. I suppose if a strange-looking creature from another world showed up, he'd get the same reception. Actually, at first, the creature didn't try to harm anybody. But now, after being hunted and hurt, he suddenly disappeared. So far as we know, he wasn't seen again for eight years. Where did he go? Well, we believe he's simply headed back deeper and deeper into the bottoms, beyond the reach of men. Only the alligator and wolf, crane and possum, and a thousand other wild creatures heard his occasional lonely cries ringing out over his watery domain. This is where the film kind of starts to go off the rails a little bit. When you have all of this wonderful momentum built up um, and we're ready now for the payoff, uh, we're, we're, we, we've entered now into the second act of the film. Um, we're, we're closed out, excuse me, that we're closing out the second act of the film and we're, we're kind of trudging towards the, the, the finale here. Um, what Pierce decides to do is um, stop this whole film dead in its tracks. And he writes this dialogue where the narrator is trying to, um, you know, relate to the creature or he's trying to, you know, uh, reason, you know, uh, how he must feel uh, as, you know, as the creature has some type of emotions or something. Um, and I, I guess this makes a, a good point. I'm not, I'm not really sure. I'm kind of torn on this. Um, but the one thing that has me confused or, or perplexed was uh, the statement that the monster retreats into the woods never to be seen again for eight years. And I know for a fact that that is not true as there were numerous sightings um, from the mid-50s uh, right up to and actually through production uh, of this film. So uh, why they added that odd little bit i have no idea it makes zero sense to me um like i there's even sightings that occur today so the very idea that, that the monster just disappeared for eight years and then you know re-emerges like um it's just it's kind of like a a, a real you know buzzkill uh right there but uh anyway uh the next thing that we get to <laughs> If that wasn't enough to stop the film dead in its tracks, um, is this uh, really odd montage um, smack dab in the middle of the movie. And uh, it, like I said, it just brings all of this awesome momentum to a, a, a brick wall, like just slams into a brick wall. But the only highlight of this is this dopey, silly goofy lullaby and i'm kidding you not um the creature's feelings um it's it's not quite 
a plot rock song, you know, kind of like how we heard in The Legend of the Lone Ranger. Um, but it plays more like this warm blanket on a cool fall evening. Um, and while the audience is, is, is treated or, or, or mistreated, you know, depending on your perspective, um, you get like three minutes of these really just kind of uh, basic, boring nature shots, like close-ups of flowers and trees and clouds and, and rippling water on the creek and, and lazy hawks, you know, making circles in the sky. Uh, but the real frosting on this shit cake um, are the intermittent shots of the creature walking around the forest looking super depressed. It's, it's so unintentionally funny that I, I nearly spat out the uh, Mountain Dew Zero at the sheer absurdity of it. Um, and obviously... This the runtime on this film is barely you know eighty minutes, so it's just a filler scene to pad the runtime. But boy, howdy, what an absolute doozy of a filler scene! So uh, I'm gonna play you just a short clip of this goofy ballad uh, about the folk monster and his feelings. This is where the story plays, a world on which we seldom gaze. Page from the book of yesterdays, birds and beasts and wind and water. Here beneath the bright blue sky, no man smoke blinds the eagle's eye. And things that crawl or swim or fly, feed and breed and live and die. Okay, yeah, that's about as much as I could probably take of that. <laughs> that is painful. That is painful. <laughs> Sounds like something Glenn Campbell would have recorded, though, which is weird because I really like Glenn Campbell. I don't know. But uh, the lyrics here uh, and the music were actually written and composed by um, Charles B. Pierce himself, um, even though um, a guy by the name of Chuck Bryant is credited. So there's your fun fact for the day. Um, so after the sheer ludicrousness, is that a word? Uh, ludicrousness of that scene, um, we catch back up with old Travis Crabtree. Um, if you've been wondering where he went, well, uh, family, you're about to find out. Uh, it seems that uh, the legends of the beast have frightened all the local boys um, in town to the point where they don't even want to go camping anymore. But let me tell you, that is not the case for old Brass Balls Crabtree, um, because Travis is in a uh, boat, and he's rowing himself down the river. Now, none of us Falk boys would admit it, but for a long time, knowing the creature might be around had put a damper on our pack trips back into the wilderness. But as time passed... And stories and conversation about the Falk monster died down. Teenage boys again began to go off on long camping trips in the bottoms. Travis Crabtree is the kind of fearless outdoor kid that would have gone anyway, even knowing the creature was around. There's nothing Travis likes better than to spend the weekend camping on one of the hilltop islands created by high water deep in the bottomland. land. 
Yeah, so the little tail end of that clip, guess what? It's another song. But this time, it's not about bullfrogs and butterflies and rainbows and whippoorwills. It's about the man himself, Crab... Crabbis. I keep saying Crabbis. Travis Crabtree. And I'm not going to torture you with that song um, at this very moment, but I will add it to the very end of the episode so that you can hear it in full because, once again, it's freaking awesome. Uh, but again, it's just more filler to pad this runtime out. So well, uh, the, the images that you see with the song playing about Kravis Trabtree, Kravis, I keep saying Kravis Trabtree, I can't say it. Travis Crabtree, Travis Crabtree. Um, he's, he's fishing, um, it's, it's Travis uh, gutting a fish, it's Travis rowing, it's Travis scrambling eggs, it's Travis pitching a tent. Uh, Travis is drinking a cup of coffee. It's Travis rowing some more. It's just Travis doing all of these awesome things by himself, by the way. But then we learned that um, the whole purpose of this little outing is to go down river to visit with this literal hermit named Herb Jones. And this is one of those scenes that can only exist in a movie in, in, in 1970. Uh, because it's absolutely jaw-dropping. The fella, um, Herb Jones, basically lives in a litter box of trash. It's pure insanity of the absolute recluse kind. Um, The very first thing that we see of uh, what else would Herb be doing? He's whittling. Uh, Yeah, so F me. He's whittling. That's a thing that we need to bring back in 2022. So, uh, I don't know about you, but I could always use a good whittling in my life. But this dude's hands are so dirty and rough and withered. They look like this wallets of fatty Tabasco Slim Jims. These are just, it's absolute unit of of, of fingers. Uh, It's just, it's, I'm gobsmacked at the sight of them. And we learned through narration that this dude has lived off the grid like this for like 20 years. And he's dirty, he's disheveled, and he's sitting on some cinder blocks just outside his house that's made, and I'm I'm kidding you not, broken pallets and there's dry grass and and what looks like chewing gum maybe. Um, And as Travis kind of rose up, we see like a hundred uh, clear glass bottles all stuck on tree limbs. And you're just like, WTF? Like, <laughs> creepy. Creepy is what that is. I mean, seriously, can you imagine just rowing downstream and just rolling up on this wild man? It's just, it's, I, I can't even begin to explain it. Did you notice my, my bottle tree on your way in? I use them bottles as fruits on my trot lines. I catch some mighty big catfish and buffalo on them lines. Here an old crane flies over every day. Looks at my place. I don't know what he's looking for. Once you, you get to know these bottoms, you, you never like for something to do. People always ask me why I stay down here. I tell them I stay because I like it better here and 
I would anywhere else. Looks like they could figure that out for themselves. And another thing, people always ask me, have I seen the folk monster? Now let me tell you something. There ain't no such thing. I've been living here in these bottoms for better than 20 years. I ain't never seen or heard no monster. So while that clip is playing, um, Herb pulls up a cinder block for Travis to sit down on. And then he proceeds to roll the tightest cigarette that I have ever seen in about five seconds. I literally rewound and watched this scene like five or six times because it's that freaking impressive. And I still, I still can't figure out how he did it. It's magic. The man is full of magic in a matter of microseconds right before my very eyes. This mess of spit and tobacco and paper, it just, it transforms into an actual cigarette. I mean, I'm impressed. I, 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 again, it's, you know, it takes a lot to impress me and, and that impressed me. I mean, the only time that I've ever been more impressed by, you know, tobacco rolling of this kind of magnitude was by Caterpillar Man in Todd Browning's Freaks, which is, if you've never seen that movie, 1932, a man with no arms and no legs, he's literally a torso, he rolls a cigarette with his lips. It's freaking awesome. So, yeah, we're talking about Herb Jones is on the same level as Caterpillar Man um, from Freaks. So, whew, you know, and, and truth be told, you know, I would be more afraid of bumping into old Herb Jones in the woods than I ever would be uh, of Bigfoot. So let's just say that. And um, I have no idea why this scene is in here. Um, other than to maybe pad the runtime or also allow, you know, a man who has lived, literally lived down in the bottoms, um, for close to 20 years to be this counterpoint that, um, you know, he's never seen the folk monster and he doesn't believe in him. But according to the book of, uh, the beast of Boggy Creek, um, Herb Jones is a real guy. I mean, that's pretty obviously, <laughs> And he's obviously played by himself here because there's no actor that could ever capture the essence of that man. And he really did, um, in real life, live uh, that kind of existence for over 20 years. Um, and to make things even more interesting or challenging, he was actually disabled. Um, he had been in a fishing boat one day when he accidentally shot himself in the leg. And uh, it seems that the gun was maybe propped up in the boat. And when he came to hop out on the shore, the gun toppled over and discharged and it struck him in the upper thigh. And with no one around, um, you know, Jones had to literally crawl several miles to seek help. So this dude is, is a, a legend. Uh, I mean, he's just as much of a legend as the Falk monster, in my opinion. So um, after that scene, um, you, you cut to approaching headlights on a dark road. And suddenly Bigfoot darts across um, this two-lane um, stretch of highway, causing the car brakes to screech and swerve sideways. I guess the excitement of nearly you know, being hit by the Hendersons is enough to really rile the beast up. 
Um, he makes his way to like a farmhouse where we see him running around and he's like frantically waving his arms and he's working up all the chickens in the yard. Uh, and then finally he enters the hen house as the ominous da-da-da music is cued. Um, and then we learn through narration that the uh, lore of civilization has brought him back from his eight-year hiatus. Yes, that is right. Just like the return of Futurama, um, Bigfoot is back. The folk monster returns. Uh, but of course, the return um, of the beast is, is cause for celebration. Uh, the news media is all over the case um, as footprints are being discovered in freshly plowed fields, um, in cornfields, or excuse me, bean fields, and all over the place. Uh, but the real mind boggle here is that the tracks that have been discovered um, only have three toes. Even though it's these damn pesky teenagers at the wheel, um, the road scene is presumably based on a real-life report by a Mr. and Mrs. D.C. Woods on uh, May 24th, 1971. The Woods uh, were traveling north on Highway 71 when they saw what appeared to be a large animal with uh, long dark hair running upright across the road directly in front of their sedan. Woods thought that they were going to collide with the creature, but due to its incredibly fast pace, it raced across the road unscathed and disappeared into the darkness. In a highly publicized article written in the Texarkana Gazette, the Woods noted that the monster was swinging its arms as it ran and looked like a giant monkey. Uh, but it's also important to mention uh, in the article, the term folk monster was first christened. So that's where the uh, label comes from. Now, the footprint scene was also based on an actual case involving a man by the name of Yather Kennedy. Uh, he discovered tracks in Willie Smith's soybean field. The tracks began emerging from the woods at one corner of the field and traveled about uh, 150 yards or so across before disappearing into the tree line on the other side. Local officials and wildlife services responded, uh, to, the, responded to the call to investigate. According to police, the tracks measured 13 inches in length and about four and a half inches wide with a stride of about 57 inches. And there are actually uh, police photos and casts of this particular incident that you can view online if the need arises. But I would still refer to uh, refer you to check out the book, um, The Beast of Boggy Creek and the Boggy Creek Casebook, both written by Lyle Blackburn. Radio, newspaper and television coverage resulted in nationwide publicity. Must not be over four inches wide. Mr. Kennedy, you say you found these tracks late Sunday. Now, was that late yesterday afternoon? Yes, sir. Just for sundown. My wife and I went out for a ride. She's been feeling poorly lately. And we decided to stop by the bean field to see if the ground was too wet to plow. We called Willie Smith right away. Mr. Kennedy, do you, do you think this creature could be a Sasquatch? Uh, 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 Sasquatch? I don't believe I know what that is, sir. Well, uh, the Sasquatch was an Indian's word for a legendary giant tribe of very shy people. They live mostly in the woods uh, up in the Pacific Northwest. Well, uh, uh, I, I didn't see anybody. Uh, all I've seen, sir, is these tracks. 
Well, now, doesn't the uh, Sasquatch have a normal five toes? This thing here has uh, only three toes. Yes, and the adult Sasquatch footprint is bigger, too. It's 18 inches long on the average. Could these be gorilla tracks? No, I don't think it's a gorilla. A uh, gorilla has five toes and very seldom moves upright on two legs for very long. This thing would have had to drop down on all fours to travel this far. What about a orangutan? This is the same thing people around here have reported seeing over the past few years. He's reddish brown. That's the same color as a orangutan. Well, I don't, I don't think this could be a orangutan. The number of the toes are wrong. Yep, so after that pretty lengthy discussion of ruling out gorillas and bears and all orangutans, we uh, finally get to um, one of the few uh, most structured scenes in the entire film. Uh, we hear the sound of children playing in a field, and the narrator once again tells us the laughter belongs to the voices of Betsy Smith's children. Uh, they're playing um, just at the edge of town, or excuse me, at the edge of the forest um, near the bean field where those three fo- uh, three-toed footprints were discovered. Um, and before you can say sarsaparilla, uh, the children come banging in the house, uh, you know, uh, screaming and, and, and uh, you know, hollering about a shaggy creature that they have just seen. Um, after finally convincing their beehived uh, hairdude mother to come take a look-see, uh, they all head down the old dirt path to the tree line. Uh, within seconds of them getting to the place, though, uh, the monster emerges from behind a tree and growls at the family uh, rather quite menacingly. Uh, Mom and all three babies uh, scream in terror. They tuck tail and they run. Uh, there's a lot of running in this movie, but uh, yeah, a lot of running. Uh, but it's good to see uh, this kind of setup uh, for finally what is the end of our second act. Okay, so the third act finally begins with the most structured part of the film. Uh, it begins with a set of headlights belonging to um, Charlie Walraven, and he is um, driving down a gravel road at night. And we cut to the interior of the car and with this over-the-shoulder shot. So the focal point on screen is definitely the dirt road. And um, in that focal point, we see the creature suddenly cross you know, quickly. He stops and looks directly at Charlie before continuing on the path. So here's the rub. Um, here, here's where you'd think that the creature would want to stay out of sight. But once again, um, he's seen, uh, once he's seen, you know, sightings begin to sporadically um, pop up. So the scenes with Betsy Smith and Charles Walraven um, are short, but again, they're very uh, effectively done. And they serve to kind of further the spookiness of these eyewitness accounts. And it also, once again, has to, like, um, once again, completely start over and build up the momentum that was lost with the two folk songs that we heard. And I say folk, F-O-L-K, folk songs, um, right in the middle of our film. So when the next scene finally dissolves into frame, we see a single wide trailer parked on a uh, couple of acres of land. Um, We're told through narration that the owner has a high-powered rifle and that he's not afraid to use it. 
So uh, he better be ready to pop off a few rounds tonight because um, his daughter is, is, is having a, a good old-fashioned bunkin' party. And um, that's the term that, that's used by the narrator. Um, it sounds rather dubious to me, um, but you're probably more familiar with the expression that everyone outside of the town of Falk uses. Um, his daughter's having a sleepover, so a bunkin' party, that, that's a new one on me. Um, definitely might be one that I add to my repertoire. Uh, but anyway, um, there, there's a couple of the girls inside, and they're doing hair and nails, and they're discuss, discussing things like, you know, normal stuff that high school girls talk about, probably. I, I'm, I'm assuming, um, like high school quarterbacks and um, cheerleading and stuff like that. But again, I, I'm just making a random assumption. Don't, don't come down on me too hard. Um, but the dialogue here... Um, also kind of reminds me coincidentally uh, of the, the the scene in the tall man episode of reservation dogs with the two old hunters um you know where they're just like walking um through the woods and just random nonsense about what you know rec, uh, rich texas ranch owners would probably talk about so the girls are are discussing what i think is is high school football um but honestly i have no idea because it's just random talking and doesn't make a whole lot of sense but you don't have any time to linger on the topic of conversation because the real meat of the story is uh lurking just outside the trailer because the beast is back baby uh once again he's perving his way around the old homestead uh, the girls stop talking um about boys and, and they start trying to make out um what bizarre noise is coming from outside um, and they're like, is it a dog? Uh, is it? I think that's the wind. Well, um, they go to the window to investigate. Uh, see nothing. They just assume that the breeze is the culprit. So they pop open a couple of uh, cold, cold bottled Cokes and, and once again try to figure out what's, uh, what's going on. Uh, one of the girls believes um, that there's someone prowling around out there. Maybe it's uh, one of the boys from the local school, you know, trying to crash this hoot nanny or, or whatever. But from outside, you hear the soft, low, grunting, growling of the, of the monster. It sounds like he's, um, you know, making a, a dirty phone call or something. So one of the girls goes back over to the window for a second peek, and that's when the door handle begins to shake violently. Um, and the frightened threesome uh, retreat to the bedroom to grab the old high-powered rifle along with a couple of boxes of slugs. Uh, but during their panic, they spill the entire box of bullets or, or shotgun shells or whatever uh, onto the kitchen floor. And that's when I noticed... <laughs> Probably one of the most strangest anomalies in this entire movie. For on top of the refrigerator, um, what you see is a TV. Okay. So let me try to set this up for you if I can. Okay. The living area of this trailer is like one large open room and the kitchen is just offset. There's no wall between the kitchen and the living room. It's just like one big open room. Um, and there's like couches and there's like a rocking chair. Um, and what's really weird is that they're all facing the kitchen. So, um, and I'm sure, you know, probably in 1972, people probably didn't watch nearly as much TV as we do today. 
But I have to say, how weird is that, right? I mean, can you imagine um, staring at the fridge with your neck craned at like a 45 degree angle um, trying to watch like Game of Thrones or something? God, I mean, that is just weird. Of all of the places that you could possibly put the TV, of all of the things, the objects, wire spool, you know, the old wooden spools, a cinder block, uh, build a shelf they this family decides to put their television right on top of uh the refrigerator so it's just weird and out of place i'm not sure if that was set decoration or what but i just couldn't take my eyes off of it during this entire scene so um after that eyesore we're we're not back to the girls frantically trying to load this gun and during all the commotion they noticed the sound has faded So they're thinking that they're safe, that they're in the clear, and they decide to make the ultimate dumb move and go back to the window. Um, Only this time, instead of trying to be sneaky, um, one of the girls decides to jerk uh, jerk the curtain open really quick. And there, face to face, they are standing right with the monster. Next morning, when her parents returned, they would find the girl still half hysterical with shock. Before the creature finally wandered off, he smashed flower pots and overturned everything in sight. These radical changes in his usually cautious behavior may be caused by lonely frustration, for he apparently is the only one of his kind. Normally, he never comes out of the woods before dusk and then moves very cautiously staying within quick return to the shelter of the trees. But tonight, he's on the rampage. Oh, fudge. He is pissed. (laughs) So, uh, this scene, uh, which was once again portrayed pretty accurately, um, was based on an incident that occurred in 1971, when uh, Chris Roten and two friends were alone one night in a trailer um, not too far from Boggy Creek. But it's important to mention that the girls never actually saw the monster, um, but they did find some suspicious greasy footprints in the morning. Um, and the only time I've ever seen greasy footprints um, is when um, I'm hanging out with Chris Hill. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm just joking. Um <laughs> But uh, anyway, so um, Pierce definitely took some liberties um, with this story by adding, you know, the dramatic smashing of the flower pots and the overturned garden. And actually even, you know, the girls uh, literally coming face to face with the monster because the true account, um, you know, says that that does that never happened. So so now we've come to the final most compelling sequence in the entire film and it's probably the one that most people remember so when you think back of of, of the legend of Boggy Creek this is the scene that everybody um, remembers so uh, the case study belongs to two young couples uh, the Turners and the Fords and they rented a small house together about 200 yards from Boggy Creek so you get this sweet little move-in montage of the foursome, you know, optimistically pulling up to this little cottage, just, you know, ready to start over or whatever. And we learned that they, um, you know, moved in on a Monday, but 
uh, you know, weird things started uh, going rotten by Thursday. Um, we also learned that the men of the house um, both got hired on with a local ranch outfit, and that requires them to um, work overnights, um, which um, conveniently or inconveniently, again, depending on the, 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 who you are in the story, but it leaves the women folk at home um, by themselves to fend for the young kids. So we crossfade from this warm, sunny day, you know, this, this brightly lit, you know, optimistic day um, to a spooky window lit cabinet dark. And through the window, we see a young woman with a bump it type haircut and she's, you know, casually drying dishes with a dirty rag before um, retiring to the sofa to relax with, of all things, a newspaper. What a relic, right? Does anybody even read the newspaper anymore? Um, so, uh, this long handheld shot is so, um, shaky though. It made me wonder if, um, Sasquatch himself was behind the camera because, uh, it's just, it's all over the place. It's kind of, it's very jumpy and jittery and anyway, um, but it stays on this woman, um, an uncomfortably long time. Um, as she's perusing the papers. Um, but perhaps, you know, this is the genius of, uh, of the whole setup, you know, because we know that something is going to happen, you know. Um, but I don't know. It, it's, for me, it just didn't build the right kind of tension um, that you would expect. I mean, they're literally just sitting there reading the paper. Um, and it kind of made my eyes go funny, too, trying to focus on what was happening because of just the, the camera work here. Um, but before too long, I find my eyes um, were fixed and, um, you know, I almost felt like I was looking at, remember those old goofy, you know, hidden 3D puzzles um, from back in the 90s? That's kind of how my eyes felt when I'm trying to watch this, this little setup. But um, anyway, I digress. So uh, we quit cut to uh, an exterior medium shot of the house and the entire frame. Um, it's real nice, though. I will say that for once, um, but the camera does this really keen uh, mini crane shot, I think. It's this real fluid. It's, it's almost like a drone or, or something, so I'm not really sure how he pulled it off, but it's really cool um, because the uh, camera kind of cranes um, slightly up, and it imitates the behemoth, um, you know, standing up, um, and then it cranes right back down to kind of mimic a squat. So it's just really outstanding movement um, that had me trying, like I said, to figure out like how'd they do that? Cause it's kind of cool. Um, so then you quick cut uh, back to the woman and once again, she's still reading the paper. Um, and then back to the front porch where we see the shadow um, of the monster um, kind of hop up on the porch. Um, again, I, I keep saying this, super cool. I, I like that. Um, and you get the thudding sound of the feet pounding the, 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 the porch, which kind of gives you an idea of the size of the creature. Um, but it also alerts the women inside that there's something definitely out there. So um, you get kind of like these cross cuts between the shadow kind of creeping real low and we're kind of following along the porch. And then you see the women inside and then you cut back to like this huge hairy arm kind of reaching for a doorknob and then he tries twisting it around and he's unable to open it up. And then um, one woman tells the other to, um, hey, go, go uh, uh, shove a door uh, under, or excuse me, go shove a, a, a chair under the doorknob. Um, you know, like, the, like they used to do in, in movies, like when you were trying to like keep somebody out, you'd like, you know, ram, um, kind of wedge a, 
a wood chair or something um, between the door and the, and, the, and the inside or whatever. So um, sort of powerless against the uh, lock and the chair, the Sasquatch then um, makes his way towards the window. Who do you suppose that was? I don't know. Let's take the kids and go to the landlords. So with babes in arms, the two women um, menace to society their way off the porch, um, down the front steps, and hightail it to fetch the old trusty landlord who lives just down the road. Now the landlord returns with um, a flashlight, and he starts sweeping the area, you know, on the lookout for anything suspicious. I had a pretty good look around, and I couldn't find the thing. Are you sure you don't want to go back to my place till the men get here? No, no, that's okay. If you've checked and you're sure there's nothing here, then we'll be okay, I think. I couldn't find a thing, but I'll come back in a little while and check on you. Okay, listen, Mr. Johnson, we sure do thank you. We appreciate it so much. Well, you're welcome. I'll wait here till you get in the house. Okay. Bye-bye. Mr. Johnson, he's a gentleman to the end, isn't he? Well, um, that really gave me a serious case of the old uh, blue balls because that's how the scene ends. Nothing happens. What the heck? That's all that built up for a dud. So the next day, um, the foursome um, have some visitors over to the house. Um, Ford's brother, Bobby, and his nephew, Corky, um, swing by to inspect the new um, Play-Doh's retreat, I guess. Um, and it seems like they've caught wind of the, some of the excellent fishing that they have near Fout Creek, and they're eager to wet a line. So the two of them head over to the creek, and they're packed to the gills with fishing gear. I see what I did there. Packed to the gills, fish, gills, fish. Yep. Um... That's why I only do this like once every two months. <laughs> so we cross fade to a gangly nephew with a literal mouthful of teeth. Um, he can't even hardly close his mouth. And he's holding a cane rod um, with a bobber kind of laying sideways on the water. And um, I'm pretty sure he knows that his uncle is full of shit at this point. Because um, there ain't no fish in this here creek. Uh, it obviously frustrated, um, Neff kind of um, gets up to change positions when he discovers a huge footprint in the mud. So he calls Uncle Bobby over to um, check it out. Not impressed with uh, neither girth nor size, um, Uncle Bobby tells Neff, um, hey, we got a scat. So the two head back to the house um, empty-handed. Um, then you fade into um, a bedside clock reading 907. 
and Uncle Bobby and Neff are sound asleep on the couch and floor, respectively. Once again outside, uh, you get another handheld shaky cam, Bigfoot point of view shot, um, but this time he's like approaching the house. Um, the sound of the monster is, um, he's like stepping on and he's snapping sticks and that sound rouses old uncle Bobby from his, um, you know, nine o'clock slumber. He's intently, um, kind of listening to the beast walk around the homestead, um, you know, with his, with his, you know, ear really kind of, you know, keyed in there. Um, and then, uh. A concerned uncle um, kind of wrestles up Neff and, and he tells him to, hey, you know, go round up the women folks um, sleeping in the next room. So the Ford women ask Bobby if he thinks it's the same thing from the night before. And he jumps to the conclusion of, well, what else could it be? Of course, yes. Um, but about this time, Neff comes running in telling everyone um, he just saw it by the back porch. Now, with this news, they once again implore the old Turner Ford um, home security system by wedging the chair uh, underneath the door. Um, And then everyone kind of starts settling in for a fight. Um, And that's when the front room suddenly fills with the headlights of an approaching car. Uh, It's the menfolk uh, returning home from work. I bet you thought that it was Bigfoot, didn't you? But it's not. It's the boys. Um, And they're home from work. It's Don and Charles. Hey, Don. Hey, Don. Listen, listen. I swear, I swear to you, man. Man, you just wouldn't believe what happened. You wouldn't believe what happened. I never seen nothing. I saw it, man. Man, you wouldn't believe it. When you wouldn't believe what happened, I ain't never seen nothing like that. I ain't seen nothing like that. Everybody saw it. Everybody saw it. So that was a uh, gargantuan monkey fist of a conversation. Um, so Ricky and Bobby, and I cannot say that without laughing because uh, that's what it is. Um, they, they head to the landlord's house to get a gun. Now, the first question I have to ask is, why is the gun there? It, it, it's never explained. Um, is, is it kind of like a... a like a rule or, or some kind of bylaw that, that the, if you rent a house, you can't own a gun. I have no idea. I just figured with all the hunting and, and uh, you know, trapping and fishing, that, that, that that's just, I figured that's standard. That, that just sort of comes with the house. It's kind of like um, your appliances, basically. But uh, anyway, uh, that's never explained why the, the landlord has the shotgun. But uh, once again, they leave, and then everyone retires to the living room to have another generic conversation about how tired they are. Uh, never mind what's going on. Um, all they can talk about is, God, I'm tired. I'm wore out. Um, and as this takes place, um, perhaps the most infamous scene in the entire film um, happens. Um, a huge hairy arm frantically um, reaches through an open window and starts patting and pawing around at the delicious white meat inside. And it's just glorious watching this prosthetic ape arm just 
padding all around the window frame from outside. And everybody's just like running around with like chicken with their heads cut off, just scattering. And what's brilliant about it is it's just so um, out of left field. It's unexpected. You don't expect to see an arm of all things. Because this whole time, this, the setup has been, you know, him walking around the houses. He's up on the porch. He's, you know, um, twisting doorknobs. And this is the first time that you actually see, like, the creature um, try to come in contact with um, humans. And it's just frighteningly awesome. And I just, man, it, if anything, go watch it for this scene alone. No way. Now armed with a shotgun, the menfolk head outside to do some investigating. Um, they're scampering um, all over like this wraparound porch, um, and they're shining like this massive twelve volt flashlight, like a prison guard, um, you know, scanning the, the yard from the tower or something. So one of these men, though, hear, hears a noise um, coming just from over the tree line, and um, all three men stop dead in their tracks and, and listen intently. And then they swing the light in the direction that the noise was coming from, and they let out a warning. Um, they're like, is that you? Show yourself. Break yourself. Break yourself. <laughs> you know, they're like, what? Who are you? Know, come out. Show yourself. <laughs> so um, anyway, um, with no response at all, uh, they decide to uh, just start blindly blasting the trees, you know, um, predator style. Um, they squeeze off like five or six rounds, um, and then they wait for the smoke to clear. And then the beast roars, uh, and he takes off deeper into the woods. Um, and then they, they holler um, after it as it kind of you know retreats to safety. Uh, but then they quickly decide, hey, uh, let's call the sheriff instead. So the sheriff shows up to kind of nose around and he discovers uh, another set of three-toed prints in the mud um, just next to the porch. And he also discovers that some siding um, has been torn loose from the house. Um, and so he calculates um, that it's a panther. <laughs> it's a panther. I'm not making this up. Um, so the people of the house immediately dismiss this um, poppycock by proclaiming, you know, it wasn't any panther that I shot at. Um, but the sheriff is like, eh, what do you want me to say? You know, like it's a freaking panther. So, um, you know, take this gun and, and take this light and this Bible and, you know, just go inside. And it's absolutely hilarious because, oh, man, I, I can't even describe it. It's so funny. So the hilarity ensues further when the group um, all go back into the living room to discuss the preposterousness of the sheriff's declaration of a panther uh, living under the, under the porch. And I would play a clip here, uh, but I'm not even lying. Just the, the rich draw of the Arkansas accents make it um, almost impossible to decipher what they're saying. 
Um, and plus, we're ready to kind of get to the end of this, right? Uh, but it's like they're all like talking with just wads of cotton balls in their mouths or something. It's so funny. Um, anywho, uh, the entire bunch um, take their guns and they go back to bed. All but one. Um, it seems that the commotion of the evening has left old Uncle Bobby um, with a sudden urge to shit. Um, so he goes into the bathroom and he drops trowel and he just starts probably laying some massive cable. Um, within seconds of him growing a monkey tail, though, the folk monster once again like bashes a window and he reaches in to grab Unk. And oh boy, I, he doesn't even have a chance to wipe at all. Um, he just jumps off the toilet uh, and he had to have left a trail behind him because he's like running out the door. His pants are down around his ankles. He falls down to the bedroom, you know, trying to explain what happens. I think I'd be more mortified that I'm running around a house with, with shit on my ass. But, um, and you know, the men are like trying to like load their shotguns. And, and here's this guy laying on the bed with like a poopy butt. Uh, but once again, um, they, they hit the front porch and they start sweeping the area with flashlights again. Tension builds uh, with a series of close-ups of the men's faces, close-ups of the flashlight, close-ups of the eyes. Then one of the men um, spots the creature, and all three kind of swing their scatter guns and start just unloading on the beast like Sonny Corleone. Um, R.I.P. James, uh, James Gunn. Um, but of course, they can't really see him, so they're once again just you know blindly shooting into the trees. Um, but once the fog of war is lifted, uh, Bobby thinks that they got him. So against the wishes of the women, who are probably the smartest people in this film, um, who are pleading from the inside of the house, um, you know, don't go. Uh, the men jump down off the porch and they start making their way into the woods. And once again, to kind of pad the runtime here, you get this pretty lengthy tension builder as the men kind of edging closer and closer and closer and deeper and deeper into the woods um, you see squinting faces and you have you know hands you know nervously grasp around stocks of rifles and you got flashlights and boots and um but really it's the soundtrack here that really what ties the scene all together um it's like howling wind and rustling leaves and faint you know hooting of owls and frogs and and, um, you know, uh, that, that's really what gets you, you know, it's not really the, the, the visuals cause we, we've seen them all at this point. Um, and not to mention that it's all ha uh, handheld camera work, you know, kind of further pushing that still that documentary aesthetic there. Um, but it reminds me so much of the original, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, just the way that it's shot. So the jump scene comes when um, one of the women, you know, hollers out, stop, like right at a key moment. And um, even though I knew it's coming, it still got me. I still jumped a little bit. Um, but then Uncle Bobby, you know, turns around and he's standing um, chest to face with our hero or antihero, the folk monster. Uh, the monster uh, starts making these real generic arm movements before attempting to, um, you know, slap Uncle Bobby in a titanic bear hug. The mistake uh, of the entire scene, though, is finally, with like, you know, 10 minutes left to go in the movie, um, exposing the monster's face. 
And, you know, as, as fleeting as it is, um, the face of our troglodyte is, is finally revealed to be nothing more than just the cheap gorilla mask that it really is. And especially in the high-def, you know, 4K scan, that does not help things at all either because um, when, when, the, when the face does appear on screen, you can clearly see the pale skin of the actor behind the rig. Um, and it just, it really takes you out of the movie because you, you can see the eye holes and, and the nose and everything. And it's just a real cringe moment for sure um, because, you know, the, the filmmaker had done such a wonderful job keeping it all a mystery from the viewer um, until this moment. But um, here it's on full display and, and I get it. You got to have the money shot. So um, Bobby tries to break it, uh, tries to break free a few times. Um, as the other men kind of rush over to try to bash the monster with the butts of their rifles. Um, it must have worked because the creature unhands um, the frightened man who makes immediately for the porch. And this is all shot from a distance, you know, under the cover of night to once again hide the cheap suit. But this one works. Um, like I said, anytime the monster is shot at a distance, it, it, it's, it's pretty terrifying, you know, to be honest with you. Um, so, uh, you know, we get, Bobby's like running full speed, um, for the front door. And when he gets there, he doesn't even attempt to open it. Um, he's so terrified that he just charges right through it as, as if it's like a freaking cartoon or something. Um, you know, if it was a Tom, Tom and Jerry cartoon or, or something like that, he'd have left a perfect outline of his body as he smashed through it like the, you know, friggin' Kool-Aid man or something. Um, and Bobby's in such a state of shock that he can't even be roused. He's so frightened. Um, so they rush him over to the, to the sheriff's house who quickly arranges a police escort to the nearest hospital in Texarkana. Um, and, and what's amazing is the whole scene was done and Uncle Bobby must have been holding that wad of crap in his butt the whole time because I never once saw him change out. Um, but we learned through narration that, that Uncle Bobby recovered swiftly and the whole family subsequently moved out of the house by the week's end. Okay. So you dissolve from the Ford and Turner house to the field um, where our story began just 88 short minutes ago. And yes, I have managed to almost double the runtime of this film just talking about it. So hopefully you found some of this informative and entertaining. I don't know. Let me know. Uh, give me a comment or something. Um, but we see a man, and this time he's clad in like a leather blazer, and he's standing in the middle of endless rows of wheat. And we cut to uh, a scene of the little, little chap in overalls running. Um, and then back to the man, and then the kid running from the beginning of the film, and then back to the man, and then finally, oh, we get it, we get it. It's the same person. The person who's been narrating this whole time is the kid from the beginning of the film. I was thinking about it today when I decided to drive out to our old home place, now run down and abandoned. Standing out in this field, it all comes rushing back. And an icy tingle starts down my spine when I recall that terrible, lonesome cry. He walks from the field to his boyhood home, um, and now it's obviously ramshackled. It's, you know, like it's rotting away like his memories. 
Um, but he pushes the door open and he steps inside. Um, and as soon as he does, you know, memories flood his brain. And um, as he, he's taking in all the musty odors of the past. Um, but he passes through the living room and he's like, you know, leaving clouds of dust as he walks. And his feet are like pounding on the hardwood floor. You get the, the real um, foldy work there. Some really excellent foldy work. And then he goes to like this burlap sack that's like covered the window. It's kind of like a makeshift curtain and he kind of peers out. It was so long ago that it seems incredible the creature is still out there somewhere right this minute, maybe even watching me. Of course, you may not believe that or any of this story you may think the whole thing is a hoax and that's your privilege but if you're ever driving down in our country along about sundown keep an eye on the dark woods as you cross the sulfur river bottoms and you may catch a glimpse of a huge hairy creature watching you from the shadows yes he's still here and you know, I'd almost like to hear that terrible cry again. Just to be reminded that there is still a bit of wilderness left. And there are still mysteries that remain unsolved. And strange, unexplained noises in the night. Did I get you? Yeah, you're probably scrambling for your volume button because I just cranked that up. Uh, mission accomplished. That was awesome. So, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, you fade uh, to shots of the, the swamp and it definitely brings the movie back full circle. Um, and then you get the creature howling just one last time as the sun literally sets in, before our eyes. And what what an ending. What, what an 88-minute ride. So, yeah. Um, but just really quick to recap, that that's our movie for, uh, for today. Um, you know, Pierce uh, really takes the most liberties with um, this the story of the Turners and the Fords. Um, out, of, out of all of them, this is the one that he really kind of stretched a little bit. Um, and it's the longest sequence in the movie because um, it clocks in at almost 18 minutes. Um, and though he sticks to, you know, just the main essentials detailed in the police report, he does quite effectively draw it out to create suspense, like I said. And to set the story straight, um, if you go to, um, you know, The Beast of Boggy Creek by Lyle Blackburn on pages 85 through 87, there's actually uh, the firsthand account of the real facts as told by Patricia Ford, um, who was there to witness it all. And so in a letter um, that she wrote to the Texarkana Gazette after the film's release, um, she tried her best to, um, you know, set fact from fiction. So um, I'm not going to read that passage to you because I think we've kind of gone long enough with this one. But um, definitely check out that book because it's a real page turner. 
and I freaking love this movie so much. So, um, yeah, so The Legend of Boggy Creek. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, I had a blast doing this film. It's been um, a couple of years since I've watched it. Um, and if you haven't seen it, once again, go check it out. I think it's thelegendofboggycreek.com. You can pick up your copy there. I actually think that they're coming out with a high-def version um, soon. Um, I picked up the bundle pack. It, you can comes with the Boggy Creek case book plus the, the, uh, uh, the Blu-ray. Uh, but, yeah, uh, check it out. Uh, the movie, um, you know, this movie here, uh, it premiered on August 18, 1972. Um and uh, it was quite the smashing success, to say the least. Um, it, it was so successful that it actually got two sequels, uh, Return to Boggy Creek and, and then Boggy Creek Part 2. It also spawned several copycat films like Sasquatch, The Legend of Bigfoot, um, The Blood Beast of Mount, uh, Monster Mountain, and um, Creature from the Black Lake. Um, and it's also, you know, influenced many modern day horror films um, and movie makers um, from Toby Hooper to Blair Witch and Paranormal Activity. Um, and again, if you want to know more about the film, um, please, 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 please go check out uh, Lyle Blackburn on uh, Instagram. Um, check out his podcast as well. Um, you know, uh, follow him uh, because he is the the foremost um, researcher uh, on this whole story. Um, and again, just fascinating reads. So, uh, Mado for hanging in there. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this one. This is kind of like a little offshoot of what I normally do. Um, but we're going to get back to business with um, Skins. That'll be the next film that we discuss here. And then I'm also currently working on something um, that's kind of non-native. Um, you know, uh, I've said several times um, on this show that uh, how much of a, a video store kid I was. And so I have a buddy of mine that I'm teaming up with, the, the original uh, uh, T-Bone. Um, and we're, we're going to be coming up with a podcast called uh, Pump Action Podcast where we talk about and review movies um, yeah, from the 1980s, 70s, you know, 90s um, action films. So if you're interested in that, um, you know, stay tuned because I'm probably going to release it on this channel. Um, and um, I hope you guys enjoy it. So uh, for Turtle Boy, I appreciate you guys hanging in there with me. Um, and I'll see you on that red road. Like the bells of heaven ringing And nobody sees The flowers bloom with me Drop me on a patch of land Never stepped upon my man Where the crystal water flows deep While the falcon flies high Across the yellow-eyed sky Lord, ain't it great to be free Hey Travis Crabtree It's the right life for me Roaming alone in the bottoms While the birds and beasts are crying Because the sun is dying And nobody sees the flowers bloom Nobody sees the flowers bloom but me And nobody sees the flowers bloom but me